So everybody is ready for Christmas, right? Got all your stuff. So what we're going to do is talk about stuff today. <laughs> we live in a world obsessed with stuff. I'm not a big Veggie Tales fan normally because they really blow it. And on top of that, they scared my son when he was growing up, Andrew. So we chucked all the Veggie Tales, but. Y'all remember the one about Madame Blueberry and how she just had to have everything and had to go to Stuff Mart. This is, this is our culture, isn't it? It's an American problem. By the way, it's a problem of all of mankind, not just in America. Anybody apart from the grace of God will fall into this. Mankind is consumed with what they have or what they don't have, what they want. Christmas time in our culture is probably one of the times of the years that this is most obvious, isn't it? The saddest thing is it's the moment that we should be reflecting most on Christ's birth and yet it is the time when we are most obsessed with our idols, possessions. We have people trampling on one another to get objects that are on sale. We as parents even fall into this trap often, and we create little idol worshipers. We sit our children in the lap of a man in a red suit, and we tell him them to dream what you want for Christmas. Share it with everybody. Think about it. Meditate on it. Think about what you want, and tell everybody it. We tell them to dream about what they want in this world, and what do we do? We develop their little idol-making hearts. Calvin said this, that our hearts are idol-making factories. That's where they are. We tell them to dream about great things and ask for it, and then you'll get it. And we live in this culture that promotes it. Today, however, we're going to see in this passage that Jesus exhorts us to value what really matters, not the things of this world. He's going to tell us to think on what's really important and put that as your main priority. Again, as we've said, Jesus was in the midst of teaching his disciples. At the same time, there was this enormous crowd, as we saw in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. They were so obsessed with self that they were even stepping on one another to get to Jesus. The crowd was filled with all types of onlookers. The motives of the crowd were obviously mixed. Some were looking for healing. Others were obviously wanting just to get a glimpse of Jesus. They might have been curious. So there was this enormous crowd of thousands of people... But Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it says that. And we've seen that Jesus, while the crowd's looking on, focuses on them, and he says to his disciples that they should avoid hypocrisy, and that they should not fear man, and that they should fear God instead, and that they can fear and trust the one true God because he is both just and gracious. 
Then last week we saw Jesus taught his disciples that they should confess, not deny him before men. And that they should trust in God to forgive them as they seek him, unlike those who were blaspheming the Holy Spirit by attributing the works of the Spirit to Satan. And finally we saw they should trust in the Spirit of God to teach them and empower them when they were put in a difficult circumstance in the future. Now today in our passage, we see Jesus continues his teaching to the disciples, despite an interruption by one of the people in the crowd. Jesus takes the interruption and turns it into an opportunity to further teach his disciples, as we'll see. what is being, And he teaches them what being a follower of Jesus is all about. Notice, Jesus gives his disciples a lesson on what is really important in life. He tells them what is really important in life. He tells them there are three parts of this main point. And by the way, there are three points of this main point on the life, on this life from our Lord Jesus given in this passage. In this lesson, all true disciples of Jesus will learn what we should truly value during our lives. What's important? What's the main thing? We're going to get it from this passage. The three parts of this lesson are an interruption, the interruption, second, the application, and third, an illustration or the illustration. Let's start with the interruption. That's found in verses 13 and 14, the interruption. Notice it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But... He said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? This is a very strange interruption, but very common for Jesus' day, and also very common for anybody that speaks out in public. <laughs> Interruptions. Anybody that's preached open air probably knows this, or preached out in public. Interruptions are commonplace. The interruption comes from this random guy in the crowd. It says literally, someone in the crowd. Someone in the crowd. The distinction is again highlighted here by Luke. Someone in the crowd said to him, as opposed to his disciples or someone like that, it's just some random guy speaks up and interrupts him. Again, this is like verse 1, where the crowd is described as a large multitude of people who were stepping on each other. Here's another person that's in sin, steps up and interrupts the conversation. One of these self-seeking crowd members speaks up while Jesus is teaching his disciples. Notice, the disrespectful crowd member gives a little acknowledgement to Jesus' position and authority. Notice he says, teacher. He calls Jesus a teacher. This was a typical name for the Jewish rabbis who taught their followers. However, this man as we will see, probably only uses the title teacher for the purpose of getting something for himself. And again, we get a glimpse of the self-centeredness of the crowd, and specifically this man. People who give lip service to get their way. And this happens with this guy. They pay respect to persons in authority so that they'll get something. And this man saw Jesus as a man who had authority to make a judgment 
or a ruling on his circumstances. But we know by Jesus' reaction to the man that he knows his motives are horrible. And he rebukes him, in a sense, and calls the man to think again. This man was giving respect to Jesus to get something. You know, isn't this just like our society also? That we treat politicians in our society with, with respect sometimes. But we give respect to our politicians. Why? So they'll give us something. Often they honor people in our, our culture. Yes, they get honored. They respect them. But they do it for the purpose of gain. Personal, fleshly gain. And here is this guy. Teacher. Respectful phrase. So I can get something. We need to be careful of this, right? Giving lip service to people just so that they what? Give us something. It's not about that. Notice the, strong, the wrong motives of the man in his question or his command to Jesus. Notice he says, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. This is literally a command. He's telling Jesus what to do. The man interrupts Jesus. He's telling and teaching. This is called a non-teachable heart, ladies and gentlemen. Somebody that stands up, interrupts the teacher and says, Hey, do this for me. That's, that's obviously a problem, isn't it? We see here the man does not want to be taught. He's come to get something for Jesus, to fulfill his fleshly desire. We see here the wickedness of his heart apart from the grace of God. And by the way, that's the wickedness of all of mankind apart from the grace of God. The world thought Jesus was there to help them get what they wanted in their fleshly desires. They thought Jesus was here to give me something. This is so typical, typical of the world we live in. Even today in our society, God is seen as a great genie, right? The world looks at God as the genie, the give me God. I got a problem? God, help me, right? This is exactly how this guy was thinking. The world thinks, oh, the Lord is the means to which I get my fleshly desires fulfilled. Uh, I, 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 I struggle because occasionally I'll watch these, uh, uh, occasionally, uh, more than I should probably, and I need to keep working on it, but this survivor show, oh my goodness. The guys that are winning right now, oh, they say they're believers. Many of them profess believer. I don't know if any of you have watched this show. It's just absolutely horrific. I mean, it's not, I mean, there's not a lot of bad talk or anything like that. Morally, it's not horribly bad, except that there's idol worship in it. And it's unbelievable. As they get closer and closer, they pray for God to give them victory. What are they doing? They're calling out to the genie God in their mind. Give me win. I want to win. This is another reason I absolutely hate the seeker-sensitive movement. Well, they do the same thing, right? They say, come to the church because we're going to make the world look a little bit like the church so that you'll come for your fleshly desire. And when you get there, then we'll do the bait and switch. We'll give you a little bit of God. And you'll see that God wants to give you your fleshly desire, which is the opposite of how God is. 
God actually here makes it very clear what? No more. No, it's not about this world. And it reveals so much about the human heart, this man's petition. He tells Jesus, give me possessions. We're not told whether the request was a just or a legal request. Had the brother, his brother, refused to give him even the part that he was entitled to? We don't know. Or had the man been asking Jesus to give a little bit more, get his brother to give him a little bit more of the inheritance? We don't know. The passage doesn't say it. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't get into those details, does he? Matter of fact, he just rebukes him. Your focus is in the wrong area. Your attention's completely out of whack. All we know is that because of what Jesus says to the disciples in a little bit, the man's heart was exposed as focusing on the wrong things. All this man could think about was how he wanted his brother to split the family inheritance with him. Now, I want you to stop and think for a second. This is staggering. When we really stop and think of who he's talking to. <laughs> Again, who is he talking to? God in the flesh. He's talking to the God-man. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord God Almighty. And what does he do? He tells the Lord God Almighty, do this for me. <laughs> Fulfill my desire. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance. What's he thinking about? Who's he consumed with? As he approaches God, who is he thinking about? Himself. He's totally obsessed with self. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about in a little bit. That this is the world's thinking, that it's so consumed with self, that even when they approach me, they miss it. Because they're consumed with self. What is the focus of our thoughts, folks? What do we think on? In our culture especially, we are so materialistic that we are in many ways just like this man. We think of our possessions as the source of our contentment. That's where we get peace, right? We don't get peace unless every bill's paid and all of our things are in order. We think that what we own will bring us fullness of joy and peace. That's what our culture tells us. And by the way, this can go for both the poor and the rich. Do you hear me? The rich think there's never enough. And the poor think the same. There's never enough. The poor can make an idol of what they don't have. The rich can make an idol of what they have and steal what they want more of. <laughs> The rich say, I have to keep what I have. And I got to get more. So I'm like that rich guy over there. The poor says, I got to be like that rich man over there. I need some. The problem is not, and listen to me closely, it's not how much money you have. <laughs> It's not about how much you have. It's not about your possessions, how much you have. It's about your heart. Where is your contentment found? Where is your satisfaction found? Is it found in what you have? Or is it found in who you know? 
So very important. We must be consumed with the one thing. And that's God's glory. Just like the psalmist said in Psalm 27, there's one thing, one thing that I will focus on. One thing that's important to me, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To bask in His glory, know Him. That's what it's about. We must be enamored by God's glory. And possessions and wealth are nothing compared to Him. Yet this man is in the presence of God Himself, and He commands the God-man to make possible more possessions. This is crazy. But it's the way our hearts are made apart from God's grace. Ladies and gentlemen, we can do it all the time. It's a, a temptation everywhere we look. It's propagated by everything you see on billboards, on TVs. Everybody you talk to at work will propagate this lie. Your joy is found in what you have. That's what they will tell you. You will hear it everywhere. Everybody will say it to you. And it is a lie. Your joy is found in knowing the one true God. Period. That's where your satisfaction is found. This guy was in the presence of God Almighty. And his attention was on his possessions, not God Almighty. And before you say, oh, I'd never do that, you don't know your heart. <laughs> if you say that. Notice Jesus' response to the man. He says, but he said to him, very important, he's talking to the guy specifically. Okay, so the man interrupts him, and his motives are obviously bad, and Jesus responds to the man, and at first glance, Jesus' response appears to be very harsh. Matter of fact, you know, as I was thinking, reading through some of these commentators, some of the commentators, I got the feeling that they made it sound a little bit like Jesus said, I don't care about you. I'm not even going to talk to you. I don't think that's true. Because if you notice how he responds, he is tough. And you're going to see his tough response. But he does it with a question. And the question, I believe, is there to make the guy think. To rethink what you're saying. Let me word this back to you. Jesus is a master at this, by the way. And parents, you want to be really good at instructing your kids? This is a good one. Asking questions so that they really think about what they're saying. When they say something wrong, instead of just saying, you know that's wrong, stop. How about going, do you think that that would be the right way to respond? What do you think would be a better way to respond? Do you realize what you're saying and who you're saying this to? Asking questions like that, they're going to go, wait a second, let me think about this for a second. It puts the ball back in their court. That's what Jesus does here. Notice what he does. Jesus identifies the man as distant from him. He identifies him as distant from him. And he calls him man. <laughs> this is about as cold and distant as he could have identified the man. He says, again, this is a generic title for a person, man. Jesus is revealing right from the beginning that this man is distinct or different or set apart from a true relationship with him. How is it distinguished? Look back at Luke 12, 4. 
in the same preaching, he's talking to his disciples. Look back at 12.4. What does he say to his disciples? He calls them what? My friends. Here he says, man. Now that would have been very distinct. It's not much longer after, right? My friends, man. What's he saying? He's trying to signal to the guy, hey, dude, you don't know me. You're just a man. I don't even know your name, man. Dude, that would be, you could say it that way. Hey, dude, I don't even know you. You don't know me and I don't know you. That's what he's going to say in effect. Look, Jesus then questioned, his question goes to the heart of who the man thought was in control. Look, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, that's a question. What's the implied answer? Is, it, is the implied answer, I'm not your judge or arbitrator? Well, some would say, well, Jesus didn't come to arbitrate on legal matters on the earth. Well, he didn't. But why he throws that other term in there, judge, why did he do that then? It's like he's not a judge or an arbitrator. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I think he's trying to get the guy to say, do you know who I really am? Do you, do you realize who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you, man? Are you the one that says to me that I'm supposed to rule for you? You got it all backwards, dude. You think you're God and I'm man. In fact, what? You're man and I'm God. I'm the judge, yeah. Who appointed me? God. I'm the God man. And I'm not even going to rule on this because you don't even have it right in your mind. You don't even have a right understanding of who I am. You need to go back to page one. You need to figure this right. you got to get this right in your mind. Do you know who you're talking to? This is what we do with our kids, right? They come up to you and say, I want this for Christmas. Or I want this now. Wait, 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 wait. Do you know who you're talking to? Who are you talking to? I'm father. Your child. I'm father, your son. You got that? Father, son. Jesus is calling this man to think again. Think right of who I am. Jesus is saying to the man, you really have no idea who I am. <laughs> you are not even properly related to me. You have come to me for your own selfish gains. All this is wrapped up in that question. You've come to me and you don't even really know who I am, and you're telling me what to do. All it did was take a question. And the guy's going, oh, yeah, who pointed me? Oh, oh, yeah. I wonder if he got it, or if he walked away confounded. We don't know. It's a good question for us, though, huh? When you go to God, do you go to God, or do you go to genie God? Idol God, the God that you made up in your mind that can give you what you want. Or do you go to 
the creator, holy, sovereign God that's over you? That's a good question for us to think on, isn't it? Jesus is basically saying to the guy, you're not mine, I'm not yours. You are as far from really understanding who I am and that everything you think, the opposite is probably true. You don't really know me. The question was meant to get the guy to really evaluate who he was and who Jesus was. Again, I find it interesting Jesus called him man. In effect, he's saying, you are the typical man, mankind who is lost and needing a savior. Lost man. When dealing with lost people, by the way, one of the very first places we need to start is also this same thing. Who is God and who are you? If, you don't, if they don't have that down, you've got it all mixed up. You better start with the beginning. God created you. You are creation. He is creator. He is holy. You must submit to him. How do you do? That's what they need to get. You don't really know me, and you don't really know yourself then, so you need to reevaluate. That's what Jesus says to this lost man. But now notice, Jesus takes this man's interruption and turns it into an amazing teaching lesson for his disciples. I don't know about you, but as a teacher and a pastor, you're sitting there talking and some come, somebody comes up and interrupts and you're doing some counseling sessions and some guy comes in and interrupts what you're trying to work on something. At that point, I'm like... What? What are you doing? Hey, I'm, I'm trying to focus. Wait. Jesus does it in a masterful way. The God-man takes it and says, oh, oh yeah, here's another lesson. <laughs> it's amazing. Look what he does. Jesus says in the application, Then he said to them, notice the them. The them, that's plural. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possession. Again, as I said, Jesus returns his attention onto the disciples again. He says, then he said to them. Now, rules here apply great. The pronoun them obviously refers to the main group that was referred to previously which would be the disciples. Pronouns usually have what's called antecedents. Big word, antecedents. They don't just throw thems in there without something it's referring to before. It's probably referring to the disciples because that's who he called my friends and for, and Luke's been making the point over and over and over. All right. So these are the disciples. Everything is coming at him, even the crowd is interrupting, but Jesus is focused on making a disciple, focused on making disciples. And he turns to them. Once again, we see here the lost have no clue about who Jesus is, so their main problem is knowing who Jesus is and what they are, but this sin and the bondages of that sin can also be a snare for us if we're not careful. That's why I think he turns his attention back to the disciples to say, now listen, beware, 
this sin that they are, this guy's got all mixed up because he doesn't know who I am. This same sin can be a snare for you if you're not careful. Look, he says, Jesus strongly warns his disciples to avoid all forms of greed. Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. This is a warning to be on your guard against every type of greed or covetousness. The warning statement is emphasized double. Be on the lookout. Be on guard. It's overemphasized. Recognize your vulnerability to this sin. And again, I think, if you take this right, this is for even the disciples. He's warning them, be careful. Be on guard. You can fall into this sin. Why do you think in Colossians chapter 3, therefore, consider the members of your body as dead to immorality, impurity, and passion? Evil desires and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why? Because it's a reality. It can happen. He wouldn't tell the church if it could not happen in their hearts. Right? Consider yourself dead to that. It can't happen. Greed. What is it? The same word is often translated covetousness. C-O-V-E-T-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. It is a lust to have more than what God has given us. It is a desire to have more than what we have. An idolatrous desire is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5. Coveting or greed is a form. It's literally idolatry is what he says here. Notice it says, which amounts to idolatry. What is idolatry? When we think of idolatry, we think of those little idols, right? Those little things that the, in the Old Testament, they made those idols. Maybe they were big ones. Little idols, right? Well, anytime we desire someone else's possessions, and that desire consumes our heart, that's another form of idolatry. Anytime you're watching TV, this is a wild thought, and you look at that and say, man, that big screen TV, HDMI, ready. Yeah, man, 55, no, 60, no, 70-inch TV. The football players are life-size. <laughs> Oh, my. I could put, oh, I can see it in my head. Oh, I know where it could go. Oh, it fits. I think it would fit right above the piano. I think you could see it from every spot in the living room and even in the dining room. Are we not beginning to covet at that time? Are we not starting to go, ooh, I want that. I got to have that. The next thing that happens is you whip out your credit card. Because after all, it's six months, same as cash. Before you know it, you're in debt and hock and you're a slave to the lender. And you can't even 
Give the money that God has given you to the church because you're paying your credit card bill. Something's wrong with this. But the church doesn't do this stuff. <laughs> really? What about that new car that we bought because my car is always breaking down? I just want a car that runs. Hmm. It's everywhere. Everywhere you look. Put simple, coveting is desiring something above God. God hates coveting. He has revealed it from the very beginning he hates it. Greed is a sin that goes against the holy God. Coveting is a lack of contentment with what you have. It is not being satisfied with what you have and what God has given you. This sin rejects God's goodness. This sin rejects God's sovereignty. This sin rejects God's glory. And this is why God hates it. When we lust after we do what we do not have, we say in our hearts, we do not believe what God has given us is enough. So we say, God, you're not good. When we say in our hearts that I want that no matter what, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it, we say, God, you are not in control of me. Give me what I want. We're just like the man. And our culture doesn't have a problem with this, right? That's why we're in debt up to our eyeballs. And that means the government included. We got to buy something before we even have it because our craving, lustful, greedy hearts got to have it now. We don't have that problem in our culture, do we? That was what? You get it. God hates this sin. And as we see, the person who is in bondage to this sin is what characterizes the lost person. Look, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. So what this means, kids, is your parents are all going to go home today and they're going to take your Christmas presents back. <laughs> Kidding. And they're like, I hate that preacher. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkard, nor reviler, nor swindler will inherit the kingdom of God. That is not who we are anymore. He goes on, Paul goes on, but such were some of you. You are not that anymore. You're not about all your possessions. If you are, you've fallen into the trap of being who you're not. Stop. That's the lost world. You're not the lost world. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. You're rich in Him. You don't need it. Man. It's something that must be a part of, or excuse me, idolatry is something that must not be a part of every Christian's life. We should die to this fleshly desire all the time. We must beware 
and be on guard against every form of it. This is literally be on guard against all greed. The greed Jesus highlights in this section is the greed of possessions, as we'll see. However, we can covet many different things. Another person's possessions, another person's position, another person's family, another person's popularity. When we look at another person and say, I want what they have and I will sin to get it or I will sin if I don't get it, that is coveting. Covenant is making a God of an object that another person has and then doing whatever is necessary to try to get that or complaining if you don't get it, which is sin too. Often much of our sin is tied to an attitude of coveting. Listen, our lustful desires say, I want that. That's what we'd say. And our wicked heart feeds that desires and makes them false gods. So let's think about this for a second. That man was struggling with his possessions, right? If we do this and we can say things like this, I want a different job. Now, be honest. Don't raise your hand. How many have said that at least one time in your life? I want a different job. Oh. I want a job that pays the bills better. I want my own home. Oh, are we getting our toes stepped on? I want a car that runs. Doesn't even have to be new. I just want it running. I want enough money so that I can eat out once in a while. I want a spouse. I want a spouse that loves me. I want a child. I want two children. I want children that obey. Like them over there. I want some children like that. I want a job with health insurance. I want internet in my home. I want a cell phone. I want to work a normal work week. I want to I want kids that obey. I want I want I want I want a good meal tonight. I want to retire at 65. Anybody said any of those in your heart? You know what's amazing about this? In this list, many of the things that you might desire there are not bad. You know, who doesn't want to pay their bills, right? I want to pay my bills. But if God sovereignly has not given me a job where I'm going to be rich and I'm not going to have enough, I'm just going to be scraping by and I'm going to have to trust him, then guess what? I better be content with it. Otherwise, I'm coveting. Do you understand, folks? It's everywhere. If the desire is more important than being satisfied with God and his glory and what he has planned for you, then there's, we're in trouble. Some of the worst covetous desires are the ones that in and of themselves are not bad things to have. Having a spouse is a gift from God. Not having a spouse is a gift from God. Really? Yes. 
Where you are is what you have is what God's given you. And if you're not content with that, you're coveting. That's confi- is that a little bit convicting? Yeah, we need Christ, don't we? We need to be satisfied with Him. These things are not bad. Not bad to have a spouse. We want a spouse, right? But if that desire causes us to complain or grumble, sin, then we're coveting. Or we compromise God's principles to get a spouse that loves us even if they don't love God, which happens all the time. What's the problem, folks? You know, I don't think it's being unequally yoked. That's not the problem. That's not the main problem. The main problem is our heart that's not satisfied with what God has given us at this moment. It's a person that doesn't trust and delight in the Lord God Almighty, who is our spouse, ultimately. Jesus develops this concept. Let's look. It gives why we should beware. Jesus gives the reason we must be on guard against all greed. He says, because... Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Why be in guard? Because one's life is not in the abundance of what he has. True life is not about how much we have. It's not about that. The world tells us life is found in what you own, and what you have. The same lie given to Eve in the garden, isn't it? Satan said the same thing. He said what? God's keeping something back from you. You don't have it? Go get it. It'll make you wise. It's good to eat. What did she do? She coveted it and went after it. It was sprung in her heart when she coveted what she didn't have. She wasn't content with what she had. Same thing with Adam. But the opposite is true, folks. Covening is wrong. It doesn't determine who we are. What we have does not determine who we are. It is not what you have in the world. It's who you know in the world. It's who you know. Life is really about, all about who we know, not what we have. This, these are some, that's the summary of what he's getting at, right there. Life is really all about who we know, not what we have. Do you remember? And I think he's still talking to the guy, and in in, I think the guy's still there, okay? He asked him the question, who appointed me judge and arbiter over you? What's he doing? He's saying, do you know who I am? Do you get it? Your life is found in really knowing me. <laughs> it's not found in the abundance of what you have. Me dividing this inheritance ain't going to help you. <laughs> you need to know me as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> I need to be your teacher, really, not just lip service. Life is more important than what we own. Life is all about who we know. But what does America tell us? What's the American dream, by the way? 
The American dream is this, a spouse, two kids, a house, new cars, and good health insurance. That's what they tell us. That's the American dream. And you all deserve it, by the way. Get that? Our culture says you deserve it. You know what that is? A lie. You know what you deserve? Hell. Get that. Understand it? Remember it. You understand you deserve hell? You will never look at the government and say, Oh, I deserve a break today. No, you deserve hell today. Remember that. You get it? And if you stop thinking that, you've begun to covet. Greed will kill us. What's the Christian dream? You ready? Here's the Christian dream. An ongoing intimate knowledge of the one true God. The Christian dream is I want to just know Jesus more and more and more and more and more. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose or aim or object or goal of man? What is it? What is our whole purpose? Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Piper changes it, and I like his change. The chief end of man, the goal, the purpose of man, is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, being totally satisfied and delighting in God. Knowing Him, that's what it's about. Being satisfied with Him. Man. Oh, we need this lesson, don't we? Don't we be, need to be reminded of this? Even us believers. Jesus now illustrates the point with the illustration, with the parable. Notice, parables were ways Jesus used to illustrate his teaching point. He said, and he told them a parable saying, the setting of the parable is this. The land of a rich man was very productive. Immediately, Jesus introduces us to the man who is rich and owns a very productive piece of land. Now, if we were listening to the story and we were thinking biblically, we would think, man, this guy's a blessed man. Right? That's what we would think. The audience would have thought that because an often productive fields were considered blessings from God, they would say, well, this guy obviously must be doing something right because God obviously had blessed him. Again, wrong thinking, wasn't it? Their thinking would have been what? Because he did good, they would get blessed. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Because God is good and he is working through me, he may reward me, but be very careful of making it about the I do this so that he does this. That's a good man. That rich man, he has a good field. Oh, he must be what? A wise and godly, God-honoring man. Fearful because God has given him productive land. No, 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 no. That's why the disciples were just shocked when Jesus said, it is impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. He says it's harder for a camel to get in to an eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. 
They were shocked. What? No way. Because in their minds, what? Rich meant what? Good man. Rich people, they obeyed God, so God blessed them. He gave them stuff. Wrong. Wrong. A dependent man. That's what we need. Notice how independent thinking this guy is. And he began to reason to himself. Notice I underlined all the spots where he's thinking about himself. And he began to reason to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Are you getting the emphasis here? And I will say to my soul, he's even talking to himself, Soul, you have many good things. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? Wow. Man, what a story, isn't it? It's amazing. It's so clear. I mean, it doesn't take a whole bunch of description, does it? You get the gist, don't you? Let's make a couple of observations real quick. First, notice the main focus is the man's own thinking. He reasons to himself and he says, I do this. I, since I have no to store up my crops, I will do this. I will tear down this. Who's the main subject, Grace on Campus people, of this section? Who's the subject? Ah, that's right, you got it. I is the subject. He's focused on who? Self. Focus on self and you will covet. Did you hear me? Focus on self and you will be greedy. So self, Focus on self and you will complain because you don't have what you think you deserve. Focus on self, you're dead. There he is, he's focused on self in the story. Covening is born in a heart obsessed with self. That's a great thought. Do you hear it? Covening is born in a heart that's obsessed with self. This story illustrates it perfectly. The man in Jesus' story values possessions without an awareness of eternity. He was so focused on himself, he had no thought of God. He was obsessed with the life in this world. He wanted to have enough possessions to retire. I mean, that is retirement. 101, isn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the American dream. Save till you're 65, retire, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what it says. And go collect seashells, as, as John Piper talks about. You can get your house down on the beach and go get you some seashells. And waste your life. Useless. Man, I, I pray I can preach till the very moment I die. I really do. And this is not because I'm something special. Tell me. But I, there's no greater joy than going to the throne of God and learning about Christ every week and then being able to tell you about Him. There's no greater joy. 
I just pray my brain keeps working so I can at least keep doing this. My body, you can wheel me up here in a wheelchair, okay? Many preachers did that. I don't want to retire. I want to keep preaching till I die. Because that's where joy is found. Is knowing and proclaiming the king. It fi- I find it interesting that up through verse 19, if we were to do a survey of the audience, what do you think the audience would be thinking up through verse 13? Just stop for a second and think. What would they be thinking about this guy? What would the crowd be thinking? What would the disciples be thinking? Well, he's being blessed because he must be a good guy. They would have also thought something else. You ready? They would have thought, man, this guy's wise. They would have said, this is a wise guy. You know why? Look at it. He's planning for the future. I mean, he's got it all planned out, right? Look at what he's done. Hey, I've got too much crops now. Let's tear this down and let's build a new one. He's a, man, this guy's wise. Isn't it ironic the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth about the guy or from God's mouth about the guy is what? You fool. (laughs) That would have been like, okay, this is like load him up. Because see, when we're looking at it, I was telling you all along, I was saying, I, 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 and I was reading it. So you were all going, yeah, he's a selfish individual here. You were getting it, right? But if we would have just finished reading Proverbs... And I would have brought this out and I might have said, hey, let's read through this. I'm not saying Proverbs is wonderful wisdom. But a heart without Proverbs misses it. Because you can do the practical aspects of Proverbs and be completely dead to God. He was a wise man that planned. But he didn't know God. And he didn't depend on God. He was a planner. How many of us in here are planners? I'm real good at planning and plan it all out for the next 20 years. I got it all figured out. Hey, I do it in here too. Okay, we're going to knock that wall down and we're going to do this and we're going to put that there and that screen there. Yeah, I can get into that planning mode too. It's about our heart though. He says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will have what you possessed and what you prepared? You're a fool. So the point of the parable, and we'll close. So in is the man, Jesus says, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. All right, now this is a, Difficult little phrase, and I'm going to close with this, but I want you to notice he summarizes the whole thing and and basically says, look, you're a fool if you're all about your possessions, ultimately, right? If you're all about here and now and all this stuff, if you're all about coveting and having stuff, you're a fool because that's what he had said. So is the man, right? You're a fool. If you're all about here and now, you're a fool. That's it. Simple. And is not rich towards God assumes that there are people that are what? Rich towards God. Who is somebody that's rich towards God? This is a difficult little phrase. I'll tell you what. I've read, I read all my commentaries on this and all of them give a different answer. <laughs> and I struggle with it. And it's not a contrast here. This is what confused me because it's not a contrast. It's an and. 
So, stores up treasure and is not rich towards God. What's rich towards God mean? The only thing I could come up with, and the more I think about it, the best I could come up with is being totally consumed and obsessed with God. Being totally treasuring Him. It's all about Him. Being rich with thoughts and attitudes and meditations and attitudes and actions and everything you do towards God. That's what we should be about. Not like this guy. Not like the fool. Folks, this encompasses everything of your life. Do you realize that? This encompasses every decision you make. Every thought you have should be towards God. Abundant thoughts towards God. That's what we should be about. In light of that, can we go into a materialistic, worldly holiday like Christmas and be rich towards God? Yes. If it's all about Christ. Because it's all about Him anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. We don't want to treasure up things on this world. We want to be rich towards you. We want to have your thoughts and your attitudes and your thinking. Not be about here and now. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Oh, Father, we need you. We praise you. You are a beautiful Savior, a wonderful counselor. We want to honor you now. Let us worship in these last, this last minutes you who deserve our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.